Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. My question is, where do we go with these markets in 2022? I'm going to spend the next some of the next few days of uh, you know, getting some free time to maybe read some of those forecasts for and outlooks for 2022. Let's check in with a professional here, Mark Dowding, Chief Investment Officer, Blue Bay Asset Management. Mark, thanks so much for joining us here. Heck of a 2021. We still got another month or so to go, but just looking at the equity indices, for example, another just stellar year of performance. From a risk asset perspective, how are you envisioning 2022 at this point? Yeah, so it's it's certainly been a um, a strong year for risk assets in 2021, following on uh, from a very good 2020. I, I guess the uh, the concern that I would have as we look forward into 2022 is that one of the big factors that's been pushing markets up, of course, has been the liquidity coming from uh, uh, global central banks, uh, and with policy now starting to turn, with the Fed tapering. Uh, with the Fed uh, likely to, to raise rates, uh, we think, a couple of times in 2022. We do think it's going to be a much more challenging landscape next year. So in terms of beta returns, uh, a much more subdued market, we think, in 2022, um, uh, and potentially one which is going to be a bit more volatile as well. As central banks step back, uh, expect to see a bit more volatility in markets. And you mentioned, of course, that the risks here is that a lot of the valuations are liquidity driven and we have issues about margins and, and COVID perhaps. But maybe the bullish case, uh, just to be devil's advocate, perhaps, is that saying that, yeah, there might be peak growth, but that doesn't mean that it's uh, doesn't mean low growth, does it? They're not necessarily the same things. That, that's correct. Uh, and, and look, uh, equity markets do love to climb a wall of worry. So, um uh, I guess uh, many people have uh, tried to, to write stocks off before. Uh, and I do think we live in a, a financial sort of landscape where there is inflation. Um, in the presence of inflation, it's, it's difficult to uh, own cash. It's difficult to own uh, a lot of um, uh, sort of high-quality fixed income. Uh, so asset allocators uh, haven't got too many places to go. And, and of course, uh, equities do have the protection of the fact that earnings um, uh, will grow in line with, uh, with, with prices. Uh, and so from that point of view, I, I still think we're looking at uh, healthy earnings growth uh, in the context of 2022. And, and, and from a growth standpoint, uh, I think we can look forward to some uh, continued recovery of the global economy as we move away from the pandemic. Uh, all of these are obviously plus factors. Uh, I guess the, the, the one thing that you would say is that the, uh, the wind which has been blowing on your back <laughs> in terms of giving you a boost in terms of um, uh, liquidity and, and policy support is, is now starting to turn and that, that chill wind starting to blow into our faces as we move into 2022. And Mark, you mentioned earnings and you know, we've just come through a stellar third quarter earnings period. And you know, I guess the question is, was it enough? And are the profit outlooks enough to allay valuation concerns that I think a lot of investors do have? Yeah, well, it really was a very good earnings season, and, and we, we, we don't think we're, we're done with uh, good news uh, in terms of earnings. I think the one thing that you would look at maybe as an equity investor is uh, you're, you're looking at long-dated bond yields. As Effectively, um, uh, equities are long-duration assets. You're, you're discounting cash flows out over many years, given the very elevated levels of P.E., 
Uh, and in that context, if, if you do see um, a move up in long-dated bond yields, that could be the one thing which uh, could strain those valuations to a greater extent, uh, perhaps could also prompt a bit of a, a rotation, maybe away from growth towards value, perhaps. Uh, so there may be some interesting thematics, but I do think that the, the equity markets will probably take quite a lot of their cue, not just from what the Fed is doing, uh, but rather than what the uh, long end of the bond market is doing. Yeah, and I think that's interesting because, yeah, stocks are expensive when you look at them perhaps on the P.E. ratios, but then when you compare them to bonds, they look a, a little bit cheaper. So it is a confusing time for asset allocators. And in this confusing time, how do you allocate in 2022? Well, I think, um, uh, per my, my earlier comments, I, I'd say with a degree of caution, I think there has been a time where you've wanted to be uh, uh, sort of positioned in, in quite a bullish fashion uh, over the course of the past 18 months. I, I think it is uh, a smart time now to uh, take some risk off the table, to, to hunker down a bit uh, and actually be prepared to uh, buy dips if you do see dips uh, occur in the months ahead. If you buy the thesis that there's going to be volatility I think maybe you, you, you're you happy to try and sort of uh, pick your moments to try and sort of add risk, but otherwise uh, act with a degree of caution. But I guess the one thing that you say about uh, sort of high quality fixed income is that once upon a time we used to talk about the risk-free asset. Well, that risk-free asset uh, now looks like a, more of a return-free risk, uh, given that rates are at nothing. Uh, and, uh, and obviously yields are well below where, what we see on inflation. So in many respects, I think it's hard to be underweight stocks an overweight fixed income, you, you probably want to remain overweight stocks. But I would perhaps be sort of um, rotating towards more cautious names, more defensives, uh, more, more valuation plays. For example, European banks, I think, are really cheap and, and could do pretty well in a rising rate environment. So there will be areas of the market that you say, yes, these are ones that we're going to like. But uh, otherwise, right. I think more of a cautious stance in 22. All right, Mark, thanks so much uh, for joining us. Really appreciate getting your thoughts, your perspective on these markets. Mark Dowding, Chief Investment Officer for Blue Bay Asset Management, uh, getting a little bit cautious, but still constructive and overweight on equities. You know, we had some retailers this morning, Gap and Nordstrom, disappointing results. They called out supply chain issues, and that kind of raises an issue for uh, holiday spending going forward. If, in fact, I go to a mall, and that is a huge if, uh, will there be stuff on the shelf? Let's check in with Elizabeth Ebert, CIO Advisory Partner for CPG Retail and Logistics for Infosys Consulting. Infosys is a huge company, $95 billion market cap. The stock's up 32% year to date. Uh, so these folks uh, kind of have their finger on the pulse here. Elizabeth, thanks so much for joining us here. Talk to us about kind of what you're seeing from your retail clients as they try to navigate this really unprecedented disruption in the global supply chain. Absolutely. And, and thank you very much for that introduction. Uh, after last year, uh, everyone was hoping that this year's Christmas season was going to be um, a lot more predictable. We were going to be past COVID. Uh, there was going to be a lot more certainty and transparency into what the season was going to look like. And unfortunately, um, it's absolutely not that. So there's been a convergence, really, of, of COVID. Uh, you have to remember, and I think someone just said, under the hood, under the hood of what supply chain problems include are, are very much the workforce issues. And supply chain does not have many opportunities for 
working from home. So those roles are being filled, even with this morning's great employment numbers, the supply chain roles are being filled very slowly, and that's very much affecting what we see with retail. And, and retailers are having to pay more, um, and the retail experience, what customers are going to see in the stores, is is going to be a bit more fraught. There's going to be more challenges in, in getting any associate help. There's going to be inventory gaps. Uh, so there's there's really more uh, headaches than opposed to what we were hoping for at the end of last year. Um, the other thing I'd like to point out is that retailers stock and plan based on prior year's performance. So last year was an unusual year, and to plan over last year's performance and those trends and have this year be completely off the rails in terms of expectations, some of those demand forecasting models are simply broken again. And so there's just a huge amount of uncertainty, and that's going to be reflected really in the customer experience uh, through the holiday season. And of course, it's Black Friday coming up, and Bloomberg Intelligence saying that they're expecting robust holiday sales despite a lot of the supply chain issues that we have. A lot of items are on the shelves. If you go and see, retailers seem to be prepared. But there are a few special discounts and offers this year, uh, and those don't seem to be quite as eye-catching. Is this all down to the supply chain? Absolutely. And I think what uh, is the primary motivation with retailers in those promotions, and um, you may have noticed, I certainly have uh, in in my email, is uh, Black Friday has seemed to be every Friday for the past couple of weeks. (laughs) Cyber Monday just seems to be Monday. Um, But my sense of it is, is that retailers are simply trying to lock in the sales as quickly as possible. Because as you think about that supply chain with all of the different links, those links are going to go right out to FedEx and UPS and those deliveries. Uh, Today, there's announcements about uh, shipping deadlines on December 15th for normal, non-expedited shipments. So I think the, the strategic objective with the retailers is to move product as quickly as possible. And then if things manage to work out, as we're starting to see some of the supply chain issues in the ports work out, then hopefully that healthy, enthusiastic uh, U.S. consumer just keeps on buying right through the holiday. Elizabeth, overall, what are, you, what are your clients telling you about what they expect here for retail sales during this holiday period this year? You know, they're, they're feeling very positive and, and very robust. They, they recognize that there's going to be some complexities with the inventory management issues. Um, what they've done is adapt by maintaining more inventory in their distribution centers versus pushing it out to stores. So that's going to push more e-commerce uh, volumes or uh, as a customer is in the store than being to order from the store and ship from, uh, from a warehouse. Um, so they're, they're expecting uh, robust sales. Certainly they're expecting um, uh, the, the inflation numbers to, to drive up the, the total sales numbers just simply because things are a bit more expensive. But they are feeling the ability to uh, lighten up on the promotions and even raise prices and still capture those sales. Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate getting your broad perspective of you know, retail sales as we head into this all important holiday shopping season. Elizabeth Ebert, CIO advisory partner for CPG Retail and Logistics at Infosys Consulting. As Elizabeth was mentioning, uh, her clients expecting very strong retail sales. The challenges that we're seeing from the likes of The Gap and the Nordstrom is to actually have stuff on the shelf to meet that demand. President Biden this week tapped the U.S. oil reserves uh, to try to bring down the cost of energy, particularly gas at the pump. What was interesting to a lot of people was, A, it doesn't happen very often, and B, 
there was um, some cons- you know coordination with some other countries out there suggesting that the, this could have a little bit more bite. But it kind of goes to the whole issue of managing energy, transitioning to renewable energy. Uh, how is that going to play out in a global economy? Let's check in with Nick uh, Blitterswijk, Chief Executive Officer and Founder of UGE International. UGE distributes renewables to address the world's energy and environmental challenges. Nick, thanks so much for joining us here. Where are we... I guess in this transition to renewables, it seems like we kind of had a little bit of a hiccup here because, boy, we still need the fossil fuels. How's this playing out? Yeah, good morning. Um, well, I think you know globally, the U.S. now uh, is number two to China in terms of solar that's being deployed. I think a stat that a lot of people wouldn't uh, fully appreciate is that the last couple of years, U.S. Uh, about 42% of all new energy being installed is solar. So solar is coming quick. Um, it's not going to get to 100% right away, but um, but it definitely it's uh, is coming quick here. Um, we saw at, at COP26 that there's still big divisions between countries in terms of meeting uh, targets. Uh, for instance, we saw with India and China, and also you know there was no agreement on carbon permits. So what more do you think? Uh, needs to be done so that everybody is more aligned? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, it, it's funny you mentioned China and India, which are number one and number three in terms of amount of solar being installed these days. So, you know, I think um, politically, uh, for whatever reason, the world's at a point where it's having a difficult time coming together on some of these big picture policies. But, you know, I think on the ground, what we're seeing is solar, you know, it, it's projected to be 80% of all new energy by the end of this decade. And so, I'm hopeful as people start to realize that this decade really does belong to renewable energy um, you know, becoming the main source of energy. Hopefully people will start to realize that um, it's, it doesn't need to be as hard as some people maybe think, and, and hopefully we can get together and set those, set those priorities. Is the U.S. the leader in transitioning to renewables or not? Uh, or not. Um, well, of course, the U.S. has always had a, a great technology advantage and an, an entrepreneurship advantage, I would say. Um, and so on that basis, you do see a lot of innovation from American companies. Um, and uh, you know, I like to think of UGE as, as being right within that, right? Um, and so, you know, U.S. leads the world, I would say, in a number of aspects within solar. Um, you know, I will say, though, that China is installing about three times as much solar as the U.S. right now. So we do have a long way to go. And in that transition period that we're talking about towards uh, renewable energy, there's also that question of affordability for the likes of solar, for the likes of wind, and how we get around that uh, given those cost issues. Well, you say cost issues. I would I would uh, take offense to that, to be honest. You know, at this point in time, solar has become the cheapest source of energy in more and more places. Um, you know, I think the use cases are, are, are increasing quite quickly here. So, um, you know, a, a number of years back now, residential solar became cost effective to a number of people, but not everyone can install solar on their rooftop. Um, and so where, where we come in is we develop community solar projects and in essence, making it as easy for anyone to get solar uh, energy, just just like signing up for Netflix, and um, and so what we do is we install projects and then distribute that energy to subscribers within a, a community, which typically tends to be a utility zone. And and our model is has been for years providing cheaper energy to to people that we uh, we sign up. Um, you know, Bloomberg. Uh, we actually have a partnership with Bloomberg that we announced back in the summer, where Bloomberg employees can sign up and save ten percent on their energy bill as well. So you know, solar. And of course, where we're focused in, the cost here has come down so much over the last decade that it is cost effective for, for many, many people around the world now. Nick, we've had a lot of uh, 
uh, fiscal stimulus. Um, we've got the Build Back Better uh, legislation coming through Congress here. Give us a sense of kind of where the U.S. government is in terms of supporting uh, this transition to uh, renewable energy. Yeah, well, I would say that right now the, 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 the benefits of the Biden administration winning for our sector are finally kind of, kind of coming to fruition here. So, of course, we had the, the bipartisan infrastructure bill uh, signed into law last week. That includes about $73 billion for upgrades to the electric grid, which will have some knock-on benefits to um, renewable energy. But the Build Back Better Act really is what focuses on the movement towards renewable energy. So, you know, for solar, it provides a, a 10-year extension of the investment tax credit, something that was initially put in place by, uh, by, by President Bush. Um, but, it, but it's something that would give us a long-term certainty, and there are some other benefits there as well. And I think we've also seen a nice switch in terms of um, the U.S. government's approach to trade. Um, you know, we've, in the industry, called it the solar coaster here for a number of years because it's been uh, a bit of a, a target, I think, from different, uh, different governments in the U.S. And, and elsewhere. But just in the last two weeks, we've had three different uh, trade uh, uh, things go through that have made it um, pr- probably cheaper for us to import, import solar panels um, in the, next, uh, in the right. next year and years to come here as well. All right, Nick, very exciting, very interesting. Nick Blitterswijk, uh, Chief Executive Officer and Founder of UGE International. That is a publicly traded company, UGE. Uh, is the symbol trades in Canada. It's got a market cap of about $60 million. Uh, so very interesting there as they manage and distribute uh, renewable energy across communities. Uh, and again, it is a trend that the folks of Nick Blitterswijk have believe will be a long-term trend. This, folks, is the conversation of the morning. Mark Mahaney, you know him as the Senior Managing Director and head of internet research for Evercore ISI. I consider him to be one of the best, most thoughtful analysts out there on Wall Street. He's covered the internet names for you know, 20 plus years since the beginning of this whole thing we call the internet. He's also got a new book out entitled Nothing But Net, 10 Timeless Stock Picking Lessons from Front of Wall Street's Top Tech Analysts. Hey, Mark, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate you taking the time. I'm really fascinated to read this book because I was an analyst for 20 years. I managed analyst for 10 years, so I can't wait to get a look at this thing. What are some of the key lessons you learned in your career picking stocks? Okay, well, thanks for the setup, and I, I very much appreciate the uh, the opportunity to talk about it. It's a new book, but it's also my only book. Uh, it's, uh, it's kind of the culmination of 25 years of looking at uh, tech stocks, and one of the single uh, simplest but most important lessons is that uh, fundamentals really do matter. You know, I've seen uh, cases where Stocks and fundamentals can be divorced near term, you know, for a couple of months. But long term, there's no doubt in my mind that uh, stocks follow fundamentals. So the stronger the revenue growth, the larger the profit pools, the higher the stock price. Uh, you find a company that can be materially bigger three years uh, down the road, and almost always its stock price is going to be materially higher. So that's kind of this one most important takeaway. And then in terms of the uh, the advice, and I try to really go through the the history of the successes and the failures uh, in, the, in the internet space, both my own stock picks, but also just the stocks that did phenomenally well, the Amazons and the Netflix, and the ones that didn't, uh, eBay and uh, Yahoo and, uh, uh, and Grubhub, names like that. Um, I try to draw some lessons, and at the end of it, I really have people try to focus on DHQs, dislocated high-quality companies. I try to describe what high-quality companies are and when to get them when they're dislocated. And that's the one thing to keep in mind from the book, it's that hunt for DHQs. 
Well, Mark, if you look at valuations right now, though, they are sky high. So earnings are saying really going to need to keep up. So how does that play into your outlook as well? Well, um, uh, one of the lessons I also learned is that um, uh, they have a title called Valuation is in the Eye of the Tech Stockholder. Valuation is, of course, an important factor, but I think it actually should be one of the last factors. Uh, you really want to focus on finding high-quality companies uh, with really, that really have platform potential. And then, uh, you know, when they show that uh, they've got um, an excellent track record of product innovation, uh, that they face large TAMs, total addressable markets, I don't want to say the valuation takes care of itself, but it oftentimes can. Um, companies that can really scale, that can maintain super premium growth, call it 20% plus revenue growth, for multiple years from a position of scale, I think the market generally ends up undervaluing those names. I think for many years, Netflix was undervalued. Amazon was undervalued because people weren't able to appreciate just how, how large their market opportunities were and how well they could execute against those and sustain that premium growth. So that valuation is important, but I don't think it should be the most important factor when it comes to picking tech stocks. Hey, Mark, talk to us about management. I always thought in my career that, you know, management really does matter. Even if you've got a great technology, I really need to get in there and, and, and spend time with management. How do you think about that as you kind of look at companies that uh, you're going to cover? Yeah, I did. Yes, you, you, uh, you, you prefaced it perfectly. I, my chapter is actually called, um, you know, Management Matters. Um, and, uh, so it's one of the most important criteria in determining what a high-quality company is. I'm not sure you can get a high-quality company that doesn't have an excellent management. So what are you looking for? You're looking for companies that are long-term oriented, management teams that are long-term oriented. I've always had a bias for founder-led companies. Mm. Uh, I just think that they're able to make uh, decisive decisions uh, in ways that uh, professional managers just don't just don't have the ability, the gravitas in order to do that, the vision in order to do that. I love to see companies with um, great vision. I think about Reed Hastings and Netflix, and I've yep. always been struck by the fact that Reed Hastings started Netflix in 1997, and the name itself conjures up some sort of idea of flicks or movies, film coming <laughs> over the internet. But it was a DVD by mail business for the next 10 years, but Reed absolutely knew, Reed Hastings absolutely knew that the future was in streaming, that we just needed the infrastructure and home Wi-Fi systems to be set up. But to have somebody who could look out, you know, that had that kind of vision five or 10 years and realize where... Uh, home entertainment was going, that was truly impressive. So you find people like that who can kind of call correctly industry pivots, new, the generation, the, the, the development of a new generation of industries. That's really impressive. It's extremely rare. But if you find those people, you want to stick with them. And Mark, speaking of pivots in the industry and the future of tech, uh, we've all been talking about meta, metaverse. It seems to be all the rage, even though it is uh, potentially years away. Uh, even semi-stocks have been you know, rallying on just the mention of this. Uh, so is that something you think investors want to be thinking about getting their toes into? I think so. I think it's going to be, uh, Ritika, I think it's going to be more option value you know, for the next several years. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think it's going to, we're going to be, uh, we're going to, I think it's five to 10 years before we really know what metaverse is going to be like. I do think when you find these large, uh, tech platforms, you want them to have some sort of option value. You want them to have some sort of long-term investment, uh, uh priority, whether it's autonomous vehicles in Google, uh, whether it's, um, robotics with Amazon or whether it's metaverse with, uh, with Facebook. I think it just makes the underlying asset more valuable. Um, I also think that, in a way, uh, Facebook needs to invest in the metaverse. Um, 
because if there's something if there's something that's going to change our social networks in the future and they're going to become much more virtual than they are today, I mean, that could create systemic risk for Facebook. So I think it's mostly an offensive investment, but there's a little bit of defensive element to, uh, to it. I think uh, given the amount of effort and energy and resources, dollars that are going into the metaverse, I would probably, I'm long the concept. The winners aren't going to be determined for five to ten years. I think Facebook's in a decent position, but they could squander it. Mark, what's your best idea for 2022? I like these uh, dislocated, um, uh, you know, high-quality companies. So there's three names, I think, in Megacap that are reasonably dislocated here. One is Uber, uh, which I still still think is a great recovery play. Their ride-sharing business is still 40% below pre-COVID levels, so I think there's a lot of recovery juice in that stock. And I think it's a high-quality asset. It's not founder-led, though. That's the one negative, but... But I think the rest of it will come huge end markets, really yep. compelling value proposition. I still like Amazon. And then Facebook. I, I think, and I look at Amazon and Facebook, both as reasonably dislocated stocks. High-quality assets, when they get dislocated, you should be adding or buying those. Mark, thanks so much for joining us today. Really appreciate you taking the time. Mark Mahaney, he's a Senior Managing Director and Head of Internet Research for Evercore ISI. He's got a book out now. It is a new book. It is his first book, as Mark said. It is entitled Nothing But Net, 10 Timeless Stock Picking Lessons from one of Wall Street's top tech analysts. And and again, as I can say, having been in this business for 30 years, Mark absolutely is one of the top analysts out there, not just for tech, but just uh, in general. Very thoughtful uh, in his analysis and his approach to uh, looking at stocks and picking stocks. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.